Good to see you all. Good to be back in Sunday school together. Um, hopefully you enjoyed the fellowship breakfast last week. I know I did. Uh, good time to be together. Good, good food as well. Um, as we're coming in, try to get one of the handouts there for taking notes and an outline of what we're going to be going through. And then take one of those gospel tracks as well. I'll be talking about that a little bit, um, but please try to get both of those. Well, we've decided as elders to um, spend the next weeks of Sunday school throughout the spring, uh, I think 10 weeks, 9 weeks planned right now, on evangelism. Um, I'll speak more about why evangelism in a minute, but... Um, yeah, I hope that you can be here for all the, the sessions. We're going to be trying to record them as well if you miss, but it's always best if you can to be here in person. So hope this will be really, and I trust it will be really fruitful for us. Um, we'll be rotating again as elders through the teaching um, we're using a curriculum uh, from another church, Capitol Hill Baptist, but we found it their curriculum to be really biblically sound and really helpful in the past, and so we're using that, but making modifications here and there. Um, so with that, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for the blessing of being your people, and not only being your people, but being your people to proclaim your worth in the world, to proclaim how wonderful and glorious you are, and we pray that you'd use the time this morning and the weeks to come as we see what the Bible has to say about evangelism, that you would use it in our own lives and the lives of those around us, um, that you would Help us be excited about what you are up to and that you would use this class not just in theory for us, but in practice, that we would be um, bold and gracious proclaimers of the good news to a world that desperately needs the message. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For coming on in, still make sure you grab one of the outlines there for note-taking and one of the tracks as well. Um, as I said, evangelism over the next number of weeks, um, and this is one of the main purposes of our lives, or it should be as believers, to proclaim the good news of Christ and His kingdom. And we um, know about this from many places in Scripture, but one of the foremost is Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus um, said to them, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. As we're reminded in there, of course, we're not just to proclaim the gospel to evangelize, but we're to make disciples, so that's our, that's our end goal, but we know that it starts with telling the good news of what Christ has done. Um, our culture is at a really interesting time, I think we're all aware of that, and uh, 
we have always, since Christ ascended, needed to proclaim the good news. But again, with our culture being at a really unique time, I think this, this class does come at an opportune time for us as a church. Uh, people are, are unhappy in the world, and people have always been unhappy. They always will be unhappy without Christ. But there's a particular type of, of discontent, of kind of angst in, in the world today. It's, it's palpable, I think. I was recently listening to a, a news podcast that uh, cited this study from the University of Chicago that's been done every year since like the 60s or the 70s on happiness, how, how happy people are. And, um, and the, the study that came back from, from last year indicated that people are far more unhappy than they've ever been. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons, um, but I think all that points to just a, a discontentment without Christ for many people and a world that is um, searching for a rock, and we have a rock in Christ, our Savior. And so, again, um, we feel like this is just a really opportune time for us as the people of God in Lake Mills and just for the church more, more broadly as well. And so, again, hope that you'll um, make the most of this time together. Our primary text over the next number of weeks will be the scriptures themselves. Um, we're going to work through a lot of scriptures even this morning. Um, you know, there are many other helpful things written on evangelism, some of those we might use. But again, we just wanted to mostly use the scriptures. They equip us for every good work. We're told in 2 Timothy. Um, but before we get too far into the lesson um, for this morning, I, I do want to just again reiterate a, a point for us this morning, kind of a, a sobering point for myself included, and that is that we want this course to be, or this uh, class to be uh, one of, of practice, right? It's not just to be knowledge that we gain to put on the shelf and collect dust, but to think about evangelism, to study evangelism, we need to do evangelism, right? And so every week we'll be um, just encouraging you in that and um, giving maybe some small homework assignments too, to help you to think about it, to take action steps towards evangelism. It's also sobering because we are, um, we are held accountable as believers for, for what we know. Um, we'll be held accountable before the Lord. And, and I think part of our being held accountable is, is our responsibility. It's not just a responsibility, it's a privilege and honor as well, but it is a responsibility in evangelism. How we, what we do with the good news of Christ that we have. Are we... Are we good stewards of it? I think we can only be good stewards of it, right? By sharing what we have, the good news of Christ. And it's even me as a pastor, right? This is just working through the material this week has been challenging for me and a good reminder um, for me as well. Like I have by no means arrived in this category. Hopefully none of us would say that we have arrived. Um, but I think we all have, have room for for growth, um, growing and telling people about the good news of Christ. Um, there are real people in the world who need a real Savior. Um, 
life and death and hell are, are real, and we need to be reminded of that reality as well. And uh, we want people to be saved from the wrath of God. Ultimately, we want them to desire Christ. And uh, I think that true salvation is not only escaping hell. True salvation is having a desire for the Lord and being found in Him. But nonetheless, these things are, are weighty. And there are realities. Life and death, uh, heaven and hell. Um, so... This morning, just a brief overview um, on your handout that you have there. You can see the uh, session titles and description. I won't go through all of them. I'll let you read those for yourself um, on your own time. But we want to be comprehensive but practical as well. Um, this morning, our hope is to really understand what God is up to. To not only understand what God is up to, but to grow in our passion and our desire for what God is up to and to be partnering with Him in what He is up to, right? If we are believers, our lives should be um, in unison with what He is up to, right? If they're, if they're not, then something is off. And so we're going to, this morning, we're going to walk through the scriptures seeing from a more broad perspective, again, the story of redemption. Because that's what God is up to. He's up to redemption throughout the scriptures. And even though I, you know, it's something I've thought about, studied about a lot, kind of big story of redemption, I was just blessed again to go, you know, through these scriptures. It's, it's a glorious story that should have our our wonder and our awe, and as, as it does, as it would have our wonder and our awe, we're going to be also more uh, motivated to tell others about it, something that we're truly in awe of. Um, and also, as I was thinking about this morning, kind of what we're going to be doing briefly, um, Scripture, or how to come to Christ can be shared in a lot of different ways, right? There are a lot of different methods. I think over the past um, number of years, because our culture is so focused on self, we've often made our message of salvation somewhat more focused on self, self as the starting point, kind of like the question, you know, would you like to be happy, healthy, and, and wise. Not necessarily in those terms, maybe a softer version, but what we'll see this morning, and through the, the, the tract as well, which we'll talk about, um, this story is, is primarily about God and His redemption. It's not primarily about us. And I think even as we see the story of redemption, and even as we begin to think about how we share the story of redemption, I think we're doing our culture an injustice if we have man as the starting point. God is the starting point. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. And so I, I want to challenge you, challenge us with that this morning as we again review this, the overarching story of redemption and begin to think about the way that we share that story is again to have God himself as the starting point. Um, sometimes I feel like if, if man is the starting point, then, then we can, 
they can sometimes be convinced to come to Christ for maybe even sometimes not the best reasons because they maybe they want a life that would seem better or easier. Those things will and should happen with Christ, not a life of ease, but a life that is um, fulfilled because we're in relationship with our Creator. But ultimately, again, we I think everyone has to come to Christ because they desire God, ultimately. They understand who He is, they understand their fallenness, and they desire to be reconciled to Him. So we, we really want to understand a, a God-centered view of redemption and even think about a God-centered view of um, sharing the gospel. And kind of what we're doing this morning, too, in looking at the overarching picture of redemption and how we would begin to share that is we're also answering some of the bigger questions that people have. How did it all begin? What happened? Um, where is everything going? And how will it be made better? Right? These are, I think, pretty much everyone has these fundamental questions on some level. Those I don't think are in your notes. But again, just in terms of um, understanding what our human needs are and how the scriptures meet those. How did it all begin? What happened? Uh, where is everything going? And how will it be made better? So again, um, quickly, we're going to try to work through overarching story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Then we'll come to some, conclu some conclusions there at the end. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to be um, reading quite a few scriptures. It said already, but Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes we wonder why he created man. You know, it's been proposed before that maybe he was lonely or, or bored. Maybe he lacked something. Of course, if we know God to be who he is as God, none of those could be true or accurate. God has no lack. He wasn't lonely. Um, perfect relationship in himself as a trinity. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't bored. But I think one of the best ways to answer the question of why God created it is to ask who. Who is this God who created? And um, again, when we understand the Bible, understand who God is, we see that he reveals himself to be the Trinity, right? Relational at the core. And so his act of creation was a gracious thing to invite people made in his image into relationship with himself. So he, he created out of an overflowing abundance, right? Not out of, out of need, Uh, for God to be Trinity highlights the fact that He is able to be loving, right? The Father has eternally loved the Son, and the Son has eternally loved the Spirit. They have forever dwelt in a perfect relationship of love and glory with each other. And the reason that this is important for our discussion is because it helps us to realize that when God created the universe and the world and the people who live in it, again, He didn't do it because He needed anything, 
And again, even in thinking about sharing the gospel, I think that this is an important point. He was not lonely or bored. Um, he created out of love and out of desire to share his glory with us. And that is the most loving thing that God could do is share himself. That is the most loving thing that God could do is to share himself with us. He created all things to display his glory in full measure and allow us to share in his love along with other beings. If you look at Genesis 1, 26, uh, we read there, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. A tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that he created people in his own image, That means that we're created to be like him in many ways, to reflect his character, to rule his creation as his stewards and have a relationship with him. He made us to know him, to reflect him, and to love him. Adam and Eve's relationship with God was not an abstract concept, though. It was uh, was real. It was practical. It had blessings and boundaries. Um, Reading in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in, of the garden, for the tree of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We often miss something in these verses, <laughs> because I think our sin nature focuses on what we can't do, Right? rather than the ways that God has blessed us and all that we can do. He gives them immense freedom. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, except for just one. But that's incredible blessing, right? And abundance. He made it all for them to have, all to enjoy, feast upon it, with every bite to remember that He is good. And He's given creation for their enjoyment, for them to delight in. But there is a restriction. Um, God did give a command and a consequence. Um, Out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God is holy, and if man were to rebel against him, he he would judge him. Man is created to know him, enjoy him, and worship God. And by doing these things, man man gives God's glory. Man gives God glory. But let's also notice Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So here we have a simple statement that indeed this was a world of perfection, without fear, without jealousy, without calloused hearts or regret or blame or guilt or shame. 
They only knew life and love and joy and freedom and perfect holiness, and that's what we were created to know. Of course, we know that, unfortunately, things didn't remain this way forever. As we continue to read, um, somebody want to read for us Genesis 3, 1 through 6, clearly, loudly. Okay, thanks, Adam. Thanks. So Satan is here on the scene. He's a liar, a tempter, a deceiver. And that's what he does. He, he tempts. He says, God is holding out on you. Do you want real freedom? Do you want real happiness, real excitement? Trust me, just take a bite. Told him that God's way is not best. Things will be better if you just indulge in your desires. So Eve, Eve listened, and so did Adam. They ate what God told them not to. They rejected God. They rebelled against the Lord of glory and followed their own way. And most, many theologians speak to there being a covenant here already in play before the fall. After the fall would come covenant of grace, covenant of, of redemption, but before the fall, a, a covenant of man's relationship with God based upon following the Lord and trusting Him, obeying Him. And that, that covenant was, was broken. But we know that in Christ, the second Adam, that, that covenant, covenant of works, it's often call, called, was, was fulfilled. He fulfilled the whole law. He obeyed the promises of God on our behalf. But this first way of relating to God, of keeping this command, was rejected. And something new would need, something better would need to be put in its, in its place. And we'll see, that, um, we'll see that to come. But when this happened, um, things weren't better as they hoped. They were worse, right? Disobedience always makes things worse, brings us from God. Sin entered in, and every aspect of their world was, was crushed. The very next verse, we read the both, that both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sin destroyed their understanding of who they were. Um, they were previously free, but now they're filled with shame and fear and guilt. They tried to fix it themselves, as we are prone to do with, with fig leaves. Um, and we try to fix our problems ourselves, and it never works, right? 
whatever we might try to fix our problems with. And we see the fallout between them in these verses as well. Um, God and man used to walk together in the cool of the day. Um, that'd be a pretty great quiet time, right? Being physically present with God, but no longer. Um, they, they're hiding from him out of fear. Um, God calls to them, where are you? Of course, he knows where they are. But he was, um, he is wanting them to confess, I believe. He wanted them to come out and say, I did it, I sinned, I ate, I didn't trust you. I didn't believe that your ways are right and that you are good. And, um, and that was really the fundamental lie of the serpent, right? Is doubting the goodness of God. And he still wants to do that in our own lives too, to doubt the goodness of God. But they hid, and that's what we've been doing ever since. We hide, we make up excuses, we develop philosophies, we conjure up false religions, we do whatever we can or must to explain God away. We hide. But God's response remains the same to us. Where are you? And this is part of evangelism, really, as we think about. On behalf of the Lord, we come and ask for people to be honest about where they are with God. Can they be before Him unashamed and without guilt? We know that it's only possible through Christ. And then sin destroyed their relationship with one another. In 3.12, we read, The man said, The woman, blames her, the wo- even though he was entrusted with the commandment, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he's Shirking responsibility here, he's, he's blaming Eve, even though God entrusted him with the commandment. So there's resentment, there's blame, there's, there's bitterness. And that's what sinful man does, right? Um, we don't like our sin to be in the light, and we'll do whatever we can to keep it from being exposed, especially blame others. So what, what should God have, or not should, what, what would God have been just to do here with, with mankind at this point? What would God have been just to do? Anybody? Yeah, it's done, right? <laughs> this, uh, this, this creation is, is done. Um, yeah, I mean, when you eat of it, of it, you will surely die. And they did die spiritually. They were separated from God. They're separated from one another. All creation was disrupted, was disrupted and um, if God was, um, he is just through Christ, but he, he could have still been just here and said, you know, this is, this is the end of it. Um, you know, spiritual death for you forever. Um, but our good, our God is good and gracious and that's not what he did. And so redemption starts here even, uh, right after the fall, right? Yeah, and that's, that's a good and glorious thing. Um, God promised instead, instead of crushing them, to crush another, to judge another, Christ in our place eventually, and to pour out his wrath on another. And in Genesis three fourteen 14 um, through 19, we see that God responds to man's uh, rebellion 
by a um, threefold curse on Satan, the woman, and the man. It says to Satan, you'll be on your belly. To the woman, you'll have pain in childbirth and struggle in your role. To the man, you'll have pain in your work. Thorn and thistles will come up from the ground. And to all humans, you will physically die. But he gives them a promise. And this is, um, in, if you want a bigger theological term, the Proto-Evangelium. Um, in 3.15, the promise that although I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's, it's promised that the head of the serpent would be bruised or, or crushed, right? This is the first promise of deliverance that we have in Scripture. After this promise, God gave them a picture to help them remember this promise. In 321, we read that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed clothe them. So he, he made them clothes course, you get garments of skin by an animal dying, right? And so this is the first implicit way that we see sacrifice in the scriptures. An innocent animal's blood is shed, and now God takes off their, their fig leaves of self-righteousness, the things that they do to take care of their own sin, and he clothes them with the blameless garments of one who died in their place. So this is a picture of what God does for those who trust in Christ. And then he drives Adam and Eve out of the garden and puts a cherubim, which is an, an angelic creature with a flaming sword to keep them from the tree of life. And then some waiting began, right? So this is, we're only three chapters in. We have creation, fall, and we have the promise of redemption. But we have questions. Who, who will this seed be? What will he look like? How will we recognize him? That's when I say seed, um, that's referring to the offspring of, of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. So we have these questions. So then the rest of the Old Testament is about anticipation that somebody is coming eventually, a deliverer who will defeat Satan, clothe them with innocence, and restore them to God. When will he come? Who will he be? Um, we don't know at this point. Would it be Noah? Noah's name means rest. And through Noah, a picture of Christ was given. Um, there, was, there was judgment. There was salvation in those that trusted in God's word to take refuge in the ark. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't Noah. Um, after the flood, there's the Tower of Babel, um, man trying to, in a sense, work his way up to God. But we know that true reconciliation can only, from, can only come down from God to us. It can't come from us up to God. And then we know that God called out Abraham and made great promises to him, made a nation of him, and he promised Abraham, that he will be a blessing, and that through his descendants, all the world will be blessed. 
from this, we come to understand that the seed of the woman, the promised one, will be a descendant of Abraham. So we see promised in Genesis 3.15 about this deliverer, this redeemer. We know, we get a little bit more clarification that we know it will be from uh, Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. And then we see a picture of redemption in Egypt, right, as God's people are, um, there's a famine, so they're, they're saved in Egypt from, he delivers them through Joseph, but then um, he also delivers them from Pharaoh in, in Egypt through, again, a picture that, that points to, to Christ, the Passover lamb, right? Um, all the firstborn sons in Egypt were to die after Pharaoh kept saying, okay, you can go, then no, I changed my mind. Okay, you can go, no, I changed my mind. Well, um, God had had enough, brought severe judgment through the death of the firstborn, but those that put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, their firstborn son was spared, and this pointed to Christ, right? And then the, the people of Israel were commanded to do this celebration year after year in pointing towards Christ to remember the Passover. And it's interesting, if I remember correctly, that if you, as you're reading through Exodus, the Passover feast is, is commanded the details of it before the first Passover actually happens. So the, the perpetual function of it in, in pointing to Christ, even from the beginning, we see was the, the primary feature of the, the Passover there. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, we know that Israel continued to be rebellious again and again, although God had redeemed them from Egypt and continued to redeem them. Um, eventually, a king after God's own heart that we're familiar with from Samuel was raised up who would have a house and a throne and a kingdom that would never end. This was promised to David. Ultimately, we know it was fulfilled in Christ. We'll see that next week in 2 Samuel. Um, but God also gave promises to his people that this eternal king would be born of a virgin, uh, born in Bethlehem, it's in Micah, born of the virgin, Isaiah 7, uh, would work miracles at many places, but Isaiah 35 is one place. Ultimately, he'd be a suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God gave all these things to stir faith in his people so that they would trust him to bring the seed of woman who would crush the serpent's head. So that's basically the Old Testament in a, a nutshell, right? God patiently giving promises to his children so they will look with anticipation for their fulfillment. But the questions still remain at the end of the Old Testament. Where is our Savior? Uh, where is the one born of a woman? Where is the one born of Abraham? Uh, where is the king of, of David? Where is our high priest? And where is the final lamb? So, again, a quick overarching run through the Old Testament. Very quick, but... And then, of course, we know that all these are answered in Christ in the New Testament. Um, in the fullness of time, God gave his son Jesus to be born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. Thousands of years of promises 
had echoed from that fateful day in the Garden of Eden, and finally they were fulfilled. Uh, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he performed mighty miracles, he proclaimed God's kingdom and hope for all those who would repent and believe in him. But rather than embrace Jesus as their Lord, the religious leaders of the day ordered that he be put to death, and he was. As we know, the Jesus, the sinful, I'm sorry, sinful, not sinful, the sinless Son of God was forsaken by the ones he came to save. He was betrayed, arrested, mocked, beaten, and he was crucified. At that moment, all of history came into focus. Uh, Years earlier, in a garden, humanity had fallen because they forsook God to taste of a tree. And now, after many painful days under sin's reign, that same God was forsaken again. But this time, he was forsaken for their sake. Jesus was nailed to the tree to receive the curse and the shame and the judgment that we sinful humans deserved. Do you remember when God cursed the ground after Adam's fall? Thorns and thistles came up from the ground, right? On the cross that day, Jesus wore a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold or silver or jewels. Rather, our King's glory was to wear our curse upon his head. God's wrath and fury for sin was poured out upon the sinless Son of God. Before he died, he cried out, it is finished, and it was. He'd come to die for sinners and satisfy God's wrath. It was finished. The temple was torn in two. A curtain which was created to keep sinful man from a holy God was torn. Torn in two. The way made for us to be with God forever. So we have access to Him. We can know our Creator again. Jesus was placed in a grave, as we know, but it couldn't hold Him. He rose again. Three days later, appeared for 40 days to His disciples and many others, told them that He was going away, but He left with them, among other things, but especially Again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After saying these words, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now intercedes on our behalf. Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit was poured out, so we've now been given what we need to do what He's commanded us to do, right? We've now been given the ability through the Spirit to, to do this, to go and to tell all nations, to, to call them to repentance in Christ. And while the gospel is proclaimed during this age, we keep in view The fact that God's mercy does not last forever. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and will call all people to account. Let's look briefly at Revelation. Turn there. Um, 19. Revelation 19, starting verse 11.
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the widepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's coming to judge the world. And if we flip over, um, there's one more passage there. I'm going to skip over for the sake of time. Speaking of his judgment as well, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. I'm going to skip ahead to Revelation 20. One, um, one through one through. Just gonna read the first couple there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then I'm going, uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 4, um, I'm going to skip over that as well, but you might want to read it um, after this. But in many ways, we are back where we ended up, man in relationship with God, unhindered by Sin and brokenness of this world, judgment has come. Um, God's love and justice have been fulfilled and satisfied in Christ. And yet, it's glorious because at the end, it actually surpasses Eden, right? Man is unable to sin, right? And this is sometimes overlooked, but the end surpasses the beginning because we, are, we will be unable to sin, so I briefly want to leave us with a few um, just overarching principles that we have to remember as we think about evangelism in light of the grand story of redemption. And the first is that the purpose of history is to bring God glory. Um, this means that everything we do in life, including evangelism, ultimately is to display to the world that God is worthy of all of our lives. This should be our primary motivation in proclaiming the gospel. John Piper has said, and um, short statement has been influential in my life, missions exist because worship does not. That's what man was created for, is worship. So when man is not worshiping God, we need to be on mission to call them to worship God. We should call them to worship him that he might receive the glory he deserves. Second is that God is the evangelist. God is the evangelist. He saves sinners. We cannot. He delights in saving sinners. He's the one that has compassion on the lost and is seeking and saving them. We are merely joining him in his great purpose. So our purpose in life must be determined by God's purpose. God's purpose is to be merciful to sinners and to save them 
ultimately bring himself glory. And so our purpose in life, if we are Christians, again, must line up with God's purpose. As we personally have experienced his great love for us as sinners in our own salvation, we ought to delight in joining him to help others come to know him. And again, I think a really important thing is just remembering our own salvation, right? Remembering that we did nothing to earn it. Um, There's an impactful line shared by one of the speakers at the men's conference yesterday that um, everyone sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb will be saying, like, why am I here? How did I get here, right? And that's all of us if we've been saved by grace through faith is, what am I doing here? <laughs> and that should be motivation for us in, in evangelism because it's not something that we have done. And then finally is that we've been entrusted with the honor and responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. Um, I, I'll be honest, you know, for me, it sometimes feels more like a responsibility or a burden or an obligation than an honor, and that, that shouldn't be. It is, it is an honor. Um, it's a, a great honor. We're, we're ambassadors of the king, the king of heaven. He's chosen us to be his, but also chosen us to be in his service. And that's a great, great privilege and honor. So evangelism is not optional. It's not an elective for the believer. It is a command and responsibility, um, though it is an honor. So we have the privileged position of introducing people to the King of Kings. Uh, briefly, I want to encourage you as homework to do three, three things. Um, ask God to give you an increased heart for the lost. And have consistency in that. Sometimes my heart kind of ebbs and flows in that. But a consistent heart for the lost. Second, open doors. For him to open doors to share the gospel. And then third, to identify three people with whom you hope to share the gospel. Any, any person, family, friend, co-worker, neighbor, somebody else. And to have the goal to do that by the end of this class. Again, if you don't, God still loves you. Um, you're still his, yes, thankfully. But sometimes I think if we don't like put explicit challenges before us or challenge ourselves, then we just kind of float through life, right? And so three people by the end of this class that you'd like to share the gospel with. And then finally, um, become familiar with um, this tract. Um, we're going to continue to have these on hand at the church. You can use them. But um, it is the story of redemption, and it is God-centered. And so, um, again, there are other, other tools, other helpful ways of sharing the gospel. But I think this is a very um, biblically faithful one and a, a very helpful one. And so those were back there. Um, make sure you got one. Uh, read through it. Become familiar with it. And ask God as well to, um, to help you be in greater awe of the story of redemption, right? To understand it better and to be in more awe of the story of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. 
we thank you that you are a God that delights to save sinners. You are the missionary God. You are the evangelist, redeeming people for your own possession, for your own glory, and people who are broken by sin, deserving of death. And we thank you for that, Lord. Give us an increased um, passion for the story of redemption. Given, give us an increased um, thankfulness of how you've worked redemption in our life and give us an increased compassion for the lost, Lord, and help us to look for open doors to share the good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.